cancer industry specifically. It has changed dramatically. The field of biophotonics was just getting started. The first instrument that I bought was a microwave spectrum analyzer. It's time to shed light on our universe. This is All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light. Join us as we explore the latest in lasers, optics, spectroscopy, and microscopy. Each episode, you'll hear from leading voices from across the photonics landscape. We're brought to you by Photonics Media. This is Associate Editor Joel Williams. Here are this week's top stories. A single-pixel machine vision framework leverages deep learning-designed optical networks to bypass the need for an image sensor array or digital processor. The system, developed in the lab of UCLA Chancellor's Professor Aidan Ozjan, paves the way for tackling certain challenges that are beyond the capabilities of current imaging and machine learning technologies. An international team from China and South Africa used a laser to create an arbitrary dimensional light that team members characterized as quantum-like. Using a simple laser commonly available in university teaching labs, the team showed eight-dimensional, classically entangled light. The demonstration built on existing properties and principles of light structuring, pushing the limits of the field by charting a course for higher dimensions that constrain a qubit quantum state. A light source that generates a highly stable broadband mid-infrared beam in the wavelength range of 2.5 to 3.7 micrometers, and that in testing, maintained its full brightness due to its high beam quality, supports the simplification of fiber-optic-based environmental monitoring systems. The light source features a simple configuration and is a necessary component of a mid-infrared fiber-optic sensor that has applications in industrial and medical applications. A design from researchers at the University of Kassel aims to decrease energy consumption for lighting and temperature technologies. The smart system uses micro-optical electromechanical micromirror arrays to regulate and steer sunlight. And finally, University of Sussex physicists, led by Marco Peccianti, professor and director of the Emergent Photonics Laboratory, developed an extremely thin, large-area semiconductor surface source of terahertz radiation, composed of just a few atomic layers and compatible with existing electronic platforms. The technology has potential for next-generation communication devices, such as in 6G mobile phone technology, as well as anti-counterfeiting and the Internet of Things. Up next, news editor Jake Saltzman is joined by New York Photonics Executive Director Thomas Batley. I'm Joel Williams, and you're listening to All Things Photonics. Today's episode is sponsored by Perkin Elmer. Perkin Elmer is an industry leader in applied markets, providing laboratories across the world with analytical instruments, accessories, services, and solutions that they need to succeed. We strategically partner with customers to enable earlier and more accurate insights, supported by deep market knowledge and technical expertise. For more information, visit www.perkinelmer.com. Joining us today is Thomas Batley, Executive Director of New York Photonics from the Rochester Regional Photonics Cluster. 
He joins us from Western New York, home to more than 120 distinct OPI companies and businesses, employing approximately 20,000 individuals and home to institutions of higher learning, offering leading optics and photonics programs, including Monroe Community College, RIT, and the University of Rochester. Hi, Tom. Hi, Jake. I want to get into a question that uh, is a fairly obvious and straightforward one, given the world we're living in. Um, it involves the pandemic and specifically optics and photonics companies um, beginning to move out of the pandemic. You know, throughout much of the year 2020, we saw companies in the optics and photonics industry undergoing a noticeable shift in, in terms of manufacturing specifically. Optics companies placed heightened focus on communication and developing PPE. Uh, and certainly companies in the biomedical imaging sector uh, adapted in obvious ways. And so I want to ask you from the platform of your position, as we begin to eye coming out of the pandemic, how do you foresee the the impact of 2020 influencing new trends uh, or even returning trends uh, in optics and photonics? It's an amazing thing to look back at February 2020. So I guess my reference point in memory is around Photonics West. Uh, I remember before going to Photonics West that I was somewhat aware that there was some kind of a pandemic going on, uh, first emerging in uh, Wuhan, China. I don't remember if Italy was in the picture yet, but I remember going to Photonics West and being much more aware of using hand sanitizer, washing my hands regularly. It just kind of, it, it was just entering the consciousness, but still, I think probably 24,000 people got together in San Francisco last year. Shortly thereafter, we find ourselves in our usual workplaces, you know, here in Western New York. And when I look back on the, that scenario, we've already adapted. You know, here we are in 2021, and we've had uh, 10, 12 months to adapt. But back then, that heightened feeling of concern, I'm sure everyone is going to remember that for the rest of their lives. This mysterious illness and, and not knowing exactly how it was transmitted and everybody, remember my hands being raw from using hand sanitizer and washing my hands so often as if, you know, some, some virus is sneaking around trying to jump onto my hands, even in my own home. Everyone's washing their hands. Everyone's it's stockpile. I remember seeing people running out of the supermarkets with toilet paper stockpiled. So what was happening then? We were trying to fi figure what can we do for our membership. And we talked to lots of people and we're getting lots of anecdotes. But as you mentioned, communication, very important. So we thought, okay, we're going to survey our members for where they are today, how they feel about this. And uh, I think our first survey did not include payroll protection money or, or the, the process of applying. It was basically, what are you doing? How are things going? And anybody who works in the optics and photonics industry knows that it's kind of filled with authentic, uh, down-to-earth, straightforward people who will help one another and are very genuine human beings. You know, that you're not, we're not talking about some gigantic faceless uh, corporate monolith. You can, you know, in Western New York, you can generally place a call and get to the CEO or the president of a, of a company. So at first, people were extremely concerned about 
how do they protect their employees? In subsequent surveys, we discovered that some of them were using uh, actual optics and photonics devices. You know, a couple of people have installed uh, doorways to their buildings that take your temperature when you come in, that scan you and take your temperature when you come in so that they don't have to have someone pointing a thermometer at your forehead or sticking a thermometer in your ear or something. So only one company early on, do we recall, said that they had someone who tested positive and they quickly closed down, waited two weeks, had their building sanitized and everybody came back to work. And I would say within a couple of months, and I'm sure this is familiar to everyone, new protocols were introduced at all the companies. People had a really hard time getting masks. There were a lot of false starts there, you know, the the mask market uh, and the cost of the masks uh, was kind of volatile. uh, You could get any at all. People were ordering them from, you know, contacts overseas. But very quickly, the companies uh, adapted, went into staggered shifts, uh, instituted uh, social distancing. And I have to say that we did five surveys in 2020. And through the entire thing, everybody seemed upbeat, confident, certain that we would emerge from this. And uh, none of them seemed to say that uh, that they had a problem filling orders and that orders continued to come in. Uh, there's, there's been a couple of companies that said to us, they've had to turn down business because we've been on this bandwagon a long time. They can't find enough people to produce the work, you know, enough technicians to, to get the work out the door. I think PPP money, the payroll protection from the CARES Act, my sense is that most of the companies would have done okay without the PPP. But I think what it did was give everybody reassurance. Many companies might have done initial layoffs just in case, you know, just to cut costs as quickly as possible. So I think the PPP money made them feel more comfortable about uh, retaining their workforce, which is, you know, so difficult to put together. And subsequently, they all adapted. I think it gave them a little breathing room. Subsequently, we've said to to companies, would you be okay without another cash infusion? And they said, well, you know, it would be helpful to have another cash infusion, but we feel comfortable that we have enough cash to do this for at least another year. You know, one of the things that you you touched on uh, in that answer there is what is something you and others have referred to as the talent pipeline. Um, And that's something that has really traditionally helped position Rochester and Western New York at the fore of the photonics and imaging science fields. And this encompasses education, industry, startup accelerators, definitely, uh, even aspects of government. And I want to get your thoughts on, with all these entities at play, uh, can you sort of walk us through the distinct relationships and how that supports uh, the field, not only in Western New York, but in the industry as a whole? I get called. All the cluster uh, organizations work together and share information and, and try and help one another out. You know, we kind of, I guess you call it cooperation more than more than collaboration. I mean, sh- sure, we're competing. Uh, I want my region to do better than your region. It's kind of like football. But in fact, one of the luxuries we enjoy here is our cluster is like 170 years old. The Institute of Optics was established in 1929. And, you know, Bausch and Lam was established in 1853. So it's not like 
you know, think think what was going on in California and Arizona in 1853 when uh, when Bash and Lam was established. So we're not so much a new cluster. And I guess when you say cluster, you could you could also use the word ecosystem. So the ecosystem here has been in some phase of development for almost 170 years. That said, because we have so many companies and there are so many of them that are in growth mode, we suffer a shortage of technicians. And the talent pipeline is something we've been wrestling with for probably 15, 20 years, maybe longer. I mean, the program at Monroe Community College, it's really the only program of its kind in the world. It's a two-year associate's degree in precision optics technology. You know, there's some places that offer certificates. There are some places that have programs on the books, but no registrants that nobody's taking optics or electro-optics at their school. So MCC has had that program for a long time. It was it was begun by uh, Eastman Kodak to make sure that they had adequate optician pipeline. So when we say optician, some of the skills are similar to an optician in terms of managing and centering lenses and things like that. But really, our opticians are people who would who would handle a variety of materials, and, and uh, an optician wears so many hats. You know, they have to run, be able to run CNC machines and complex interferometers and uh, metrology equipment, things like that. That program says it was begun for Kodak went into decline as Kodak went into decline. So right around the time I began working with the cluster, which was just a little less than 20 years ago, Kodak at that time was probably down to maybe 6,000 employees from a high of about 62,000, maybe 20 years before. That was a huge job loss. In terms of talent, you know, master opticians and technicians that worked at Kodak many of whom went through the MCC program, are still employed here today. They're eyeing retirement. They might be eyeing retirement today, but that was so that Kodak infusion of technical talent and establishing that program at MCC was a great thing. But that program at one point about 12 years ago had uh, two registrations and one of them dropped out. So it was pretty clear to the cluster that developing that pipeline was, was critical to the region's industry. And we approached it with a complete kind of multi-pronged offering. And we were improvising at this, Jake. It's not like we were looking at a book. <laughs> it was like, how do we save this program? If if the dean at MCC, where that program exists, had not been on our corner I'm pretty sure the program would have shut down and it would have been a very difficult thing to start up again. But she kept us on life support. Before the program got back on its feet, we went through three community college presidents. And of course, each one, you have to take them on tours of local companies and have CEOs come in and tell them how important the program is. And then we did a presentation to uh, the Corning Foundation about eight years ago. And uh, got an infusion of money from the Corning Foundation. The closer on that was uh, Jim Sidor at Sidor Optics offered to match their grant with $250,000. So that ended up being a, I think about a $750,000 grant for a five year period to grow the optics program. And obviously 
is in Corning's interest. I remember at the time I, I was uh, presenting to Don McCabe. He was the vice president of worldwide uh, quality and manufacturing at the time. And I said, Don, you've got Corning in Corning, New York. You have Corning Fairport in Rochester, New York, and you've got Corning Canton up in the North Country. And if you expect that those manufacturing operations are going to remain healthy in the future, you need to invest in this program. We know, Kodak is not going to do it anymore. We need another sponsor. And he uh, introduced us and kind of shepherded us through the process with the Corning Foundation. That enabled us to get some new equipment, some new CNC and metrology equipment, and it'll make it makes it much more appealing to students. You know, the curb appeal when they walk past the room and see these beautiful OptiPro machines, which incidentally are made by one of our members. And then we began a high school summer program that uh, was initially sponsored by all of our members. Uh, you know, many it was all volunteer driven. So companies would give a few days off to an employee to come and work with these high school students. And that was to give the, the students an immersion in optics and photonics uh, with a few experiments. And we made up the curriculum. You know, l- luckily, we're surrounded by smart people who know how to teach optics on the top of a lunch counter. They could, you know, are, anybody who's in this industry has a few tricks up their sleeve. And then other schools heard about this and wanted to participate. We didn't have enough volunteers to grow the summer school into something for a 100 students. So in order to kind of create a barrier, but also an incentive, we said you can only participate if you will teach MCC's intro to optics course at your school as a dual credit course. So you have to identify a teacher that's going to teach this dual credit course. Well, that thinned the ranks significantly, but we still got two new schools on board. And flash forward to today, we got another grant from the Corning Foundation. Uh, Alexis Vogt, who is a uh, determined, enthusiastic, perfect spokesperson for the industry, and a great uh, teacher. Program at MCC, Alexis Vogt, of that program. Right, right. And she turned around and got a four and a half million dollar grant from the Office of Naval Research uh, last year because it's recognized that this is a national security issue in our particular industry. I mean, you know, and your listeners know how many defense programs, how many specific vehicles, uh, something, uh, what, the Blackhawk or the Apache helicopter has something like 350 optical systems, including sensors and conformal windows. And we permeate everything in the Defense Department. They see it as a uh, critical national security issue. So in the middle of the pandemic, this past September of 2020, the MCC program had the highest registration in the history of the program in 40 years. There's 72 people register for the optics program. Then they had more register at the beginning of this year. So in the spring semester here, they're up around 80 or more. And incidentally, I'm one of them. I'm taking the intro to optics course and I'm enjoying it. We've only had two classes, but I, I, I kind of felt that I owed it to Alexis and myself to take this course. I've been talking about it for so long. And there are 12 high schools teaching dual credit optics in the region, and that's about 250 or more high school students taking dual credit optics. So that's kind of part of the benefit of working together with stakeholders in an industry cluster like this to grow the ecosystem 
and everybody is willing to work together and contribute on anything that everybody's going to benefit from. You know, on this notion of education, one of the very important spaces that New York Photonics and you in particular uh, occupy involves working with policymakers and in many cases, educating policymakers and and representatives from government. And so I I wanted to ask you, what what resources do you use to deliver this education and, and what's the message that you try to convey? First of all, I have to give a shout out to Bob Bro in yes, Arizona. From the Tucson cluster, yes. So so Bob Bro was definitely our mentor. You know, he's like the Johnny Appleseed of optics clusters. Created a few too many competitors, maybe, but I, I still have his presentation that he gave me. This is probably two thousand two, two thousand one, where he said our industry is facing a really difficult, looming problem that we have to start addressing now. And nobody did anything about it back then. And he he predicted that we were going to have this major workforce shortage when the baby boomers started retiring. So it was Bob Bro who first clued me in on that specific issue. I've been involved in workforce development for many years. But he's the first person that I heard say it out loud to a group of people. So the people with jobs vote. And it's not a complicated presentation to express that to policymakers. But what is difficult is the Rochester region is represented by four congressional representatives that overlap in Rochester. I don't think any of our uh, uh, fellow cluster members has to deal with that. Usually they have one for their district and two senators. We have four from our district and two senators. It's not just the cluster that identifies the issues to the delegation. Somebody like the University of Rochester, the uh, Rochester Institute of Technology, even MCC put the workforce development and the innovation idea on the map with the policymakers. But, you know, optics and photonics might get a little lost in the sauce. Uh, Our dear friend, uh, the late Louise Slaughter, who was a congresswoman from our district for many years, uh, one of our big champions, she she used to say to me, you know, the, the laboratory for laser energetics is part of the University of Rochester. It's here, here in Rochester. And I often tell people that's a national lab. Rochester has a national lab. The laboratory for laser energetics is a national lab. You know, they talk about Los Alamos and Brookhaven. And so we have our own national lab over here on River Road. I think they just announced they got another $80 million or something. But Louis Slaughter used to say to me, I don't know, Tom. They're getting another $60 million this year. Are we ever going to see this laser fusion thing pay off? Is that going to happen in our lifetime? She understood uh, the promise of laser fusion, but, you know, she wasn't certain that that promise would ever be fulfilled. But she might not see the laboratory for laser energetics like someone from the optics industry. She might not see it as a place, like a a training ground for students from the Institute and a place where the leading scientists are mentors to students from the Institute. Someone like uh, the late Steve Jacobs, whose student body, even today, talk of him with reverence and how much he impacted their lives. And, And some of those students are currently chief scientists at local optics and photonics companies or professors. So 
they don't see the laboratory for laser energetics with the same view that we do. So that's what we offer as a cluster when we're lobbying in Washington. Um, we we pull, the, pull it together. They, you know, they don't realize that the backup camera on their car is optics and photonics. They don't realize that their mobile phone is an optics and photonics device. You know, we've mentioned this word now, cluster, and you've defined it as ecosystem, Tom, in referencing the, the Rochester optics and photonics uh, community, really Western New York. When we're talking about the word cluster, what is the significance uh, of optics and photonics communities operating uh, in such a distinctive structure or ecosystem? Well, you know, I think the economic cluster concept was something I first read about it in the Harvard Business Review when I was the economic development director for the uh, county, the region here in Rochester. So, you know, I was looking for innovative things and different ways to look at the companies that we work with. And I'm reading the Harvard Business Review, and here's a thing by uh, Michael Porter about industry clusters. Well, back then, Rochester was called the World Imaging Center. And, you know, some marketing person came up with that, who, you know, it was probably because of the combination of Kodak and Xerox. Kodak taking pictures and creating film and Xerox doing xerography and, you know, copies and they're making images. But it really didn't tell, tell the whole story. Organizing as a cluster versus being identified as having a cluster are two different things. So Michael Porter was just saying, you have a community, you have a few different ways and angles that you can look at the community's economy. And if you have a well-developed community that's been around for a while and seems somewhat healthy, you can look at it from this angle and say, oh, we have a lot of companies that are involved in food production and agriculture. So you might have food and agriculture, and that is going to, that could include, you know, restaurants and wine companies and farmers and new food production methods and scientific research. So this is a economist's view of your uh, community. So it's a totally different thing for people to say, oh, look, we have an optics and photonics cluster. What can we do to feed and nurture it? Now, I don't think Michael Porter was thinking about that when he first posited this idea of industry clusters. He was just saying, here's a way to see whether you you have a healthy community. Do you have a few healthy industry clusters? It was Bob Bro <laughs> for, our, for our group. Who t- I, sh- I mean, sure, you have Silicon Valley, which ostensibly, because of the name, is the center for a semiconductor industry, right? But, you know, Bob Bro was the guy who said, hey, wait a minute, we have a nascent cluster in Tucson, Arizona. How do we feed and water it? The Optics Institute there was pretty new. The companies there were pretty new. But, hey, look what we're You ever been in the basement of their football stadium? (laughs) They're making, uh, you know, six-meter telescope mirrors down there in the basement. So they have an industry cluster, but but in our group, it was Bob Bro that first started saying, look, your cluster could be anything. It could be the companies. It could be the Department of Labor. It could be the government. It could be, you know, the car, car dealerships who are going to want to sell cars to all the people who have jobs in the industry. It could be the shoe store that's going to sell, sell work shoes to the people. You know, he's the one who uh, really 
was out there proselytizing and got our attention. Our the, the person who started our cluster as a formal organization is a guy named Chris Cotton. Uh, Christopher Cotton came to see me in the economic development office and said, do you realize that we have this thing here in Rochester that you can't see it because every time Kodak announces some layoffs or Xerox opens a new building, that's on the front page. You don't realize how many small companies we have here in this industry. He actually organized a few of those people, put together a formal not-for-profit corporation, the Rochester Regional Photonics Cluster. And there were a few others that, one of them is not with us anymore, but there were a few others who joined him. In our first meeting, he said, uh, I said, what can I do? I'm, I'm with the government. I'm here to help, right? <laughs> so he said, I said, what What can can I do? And he said, can you pay for the beer and chicken wing? And, and we had the, <laughs> the meeting yeah, very at, at a restaurant on the bay. The big presentation of the evening was how could we all save money if we bought cerium oxide together in bulk? And uh, cerium oxide, of course, is what so many uh, optics companies use to as, as the, the best uh, polishing a- agent for uh, flats or A-spheres or what have you. Were you, were you the um, were you the only uh, table at the restaurant that night having that conversation? No, it was no, it was the formal presentation of the evening. It was <laughs> so uh, I do remember one guy his bar stool collapsed, and then for for the seriously, Jake, for the next five years, the Rochester Regional Photonics Cluster meetings were held in bars. It's uh, it's embracing your community. Yeah, the annual meeting would be, what are you doing after work next Thursday? We're all getting together over here, and everyone go to get, get together. And, uh, you know, there's something really valuable about that. The serendipity of getting a group of people, alcohol doesn't always need to be involved, but certainly food and booze help. Look, what's the number one thing people are telling us in our surveys that they miss the most? Many of them are adapting. You can't go to a conference. And typically, one of our members, you know, they would send a few people to maybe three or four conferences a year, you know, a couple of OSA conferences, a few SPIE conferences. They might send a scientist or two or a salesperson or two to a conference in Europe or Asia. And you you have both the technical presentations and then the exhibition floor and the opportunity to visit companies in the region. So technical presentations could go on virtually forever, right? I mean, you basically, you need to publish. People need to read the papers. People are eager to do that. But for salespeople and on the exhibition side, people miss the serendipity of going someplace. Sometimes it doesn't even happen on the exhibition floor. You take 20 minutes to go grab a sandwich somewhere. You sit at a table with a stranger. You say, where are you from? They tell you, a person at the next table says, oh, I'm from there. The next thing you know, you're meeting, there's a three-person conversation going on. Yeah, you're off and running. Right. And frequently leads emerge. Well, I, I don't have a market for that, but do you know these guys? Let me introduce you to them. So this is the number one thing that our members miss right now after a, a year in the pandemic is the, those face-to-face calls. But many of them have adapted. So going back to our annual meetings, my job when I came on was to 
increase that profile to pick one or two major projects that we were working on, try and accomplish those, and give updates at the annual meetings. So the first one was getting funding for uh, MCC and, and growing the MCC program, perhaps. Simple things like a newsletter. I don't know, you probably get newsletters from clusters around the world. Back then, 18 years ago, nobody had a newsletter, even companies who were just beginning to look at the idea of sharing newsletters and app notes and things like that. So we, we grew that profile until it was entire community. Uh, an ecosystem began to grow, Jake. So, so our biggest annual meeting was 350 people at the Museum and Science Center. So those kind of interactions are also incredibly valuable, right? You're going to have bankers and investment bankers and venture capitalists and uh, real estate and insurance people. And it brings uh, an energy when you bring all those people into the room. But you need to have at least one or two major projects in the works to highlight. You know, Tom, we are, uh, I don't mean to cut you off. We are running short on time. And I, before, I, before I let you go, though, I, you know, we've, we've talked about this sort of uh, peripherally. Uh, and one final question for our guest, uh, Tom Batley, Executive Director of New York Photonics is this notion of, of competition. And you've, you know, you've sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Competition is great. Um, but one of the, the, the most evident growth areas in optics and photonics, uh, really since the start of the last decade, uh, but perhaps for even longer, has been globalization, geographic diversity uh, in research and in industry. Uh, and with that, of course, comes competition. So I, I just want to get your thoughts as we close here uh, about the message or the attitude that you aim to share as more and more companies and institutions seek a piece of this pie. Wow. That's a subject for multiple podcasts. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry to, to, no, to leave it with you. Uh, so what I can say is obviously we have companies like Corning that are already global in their reach. We have many companies and we've asked this question numerous times. We've worked with Department of Commerce, U.S. Department of Commerce, who say, there is so much work in the United States, we don't have the energy or the time to even care about selling overseas. We're, we're so busy, we cannot imagine. It's too distracting. But we have other companies who have joint ventures here or overseas, and that's part of their market. So five blocks from here, maybe a little less, is QED technology and QED optics. They're both a service provider, QED Optics, and uh, an organization you know, that, that makes uh, machine tools and metro metrology equipment for optics manufacturing. It was probably six years ago, I was at Laser Munich. I went north to Jena after Laser Munich to visit Fraunhofer Optics and Photonics and uh, Yen Optics, a few manufacturers in Jena. And Kevin Fuchsel from uh, Fraunhofer IOP took me on the tour of Fraunhofer, and I went into the basement where they have many research labs. Each one in itself focused on a specific technology for the future that you and I could do a whole podcast about, ion beam finishing, ion code, ion beam coding. But we went into one room, and there was an installation happening. There was about $2 million worth of QED equipment being installed in the basement at Fraunhofer in Jena. And that equipment was made about four blocks from where I'm sitting here in Rochester. 
So some of those people see the, the global marketplace as something they have to participate in or need to be there. And, you know, when you have 120 companies, they're all over the map. Some of them think they never need to leave the U.S. Some others are strictly devoted to Defense Department work and things like that. Uh, and then on the workforce, obviously, for the past six, eight years, it's been a big issue. You know, uh, uh, H-1B visas, qualified workforce, big Big corporations insisting that we need the H-1B visa so we can recruit from a global talent pool versus a company that does a lot of ITAR work that can't really afford to have many people in their workforce like that at all because it just makes it too complicated to, to comply with regulations. So it's all, it's all over the map, Jake. I, I can't give you a definitive answer. Well, fair enough. I appreciate the honesty, and uh, more than that, I appreciate the insights. Uh, it's been fascinating, and I, I do apologize. Uh, but this has been Tom Batley. He is the executive director of New York Photonics, and he's been kind enough to join us on All Things Photonics to talk about, well, all things photonics. So, Tom, thank you very much. Thanks, Jake. I look forward to a, a little more time in the future. That does it for this episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our engineer, Alan Shepard, and to Joel Williams with the news. Our featured music is courtesy of betterwithmusic.com. Most of all, thank you, our listeners. As always, you can share your thoughts, pitch us ideas, let us know how we're doing. You can reach us at allthings at photonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as on our website. Subscribe, never miss an episode. I'm Jake Saltzman. This has been a Photonics Media Production.